0: Constructing Yourself, the podcast for meta modern mutants interested in meditation, awakening, hardcore dharma, beauty, love, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the show, and in this episode I'll be speaking once again with Hamid Ali. Hamid Ali, whose pen name is A.H. Almas, is founder of The Diamond Approach to Self-Realization a contemporary teaching that developed within the context of both ancient spiritual teachings and modern depth psychology theories. Almas has authored 18 books about spiritual realization, including the Diamond Heart series, The Pearl Beyond Price, The Void, and The Alchemy of Freedom. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Love Unveiled with A. H. Almas. Hamid, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast for the second time.
1: Well, I'm happy to be here for the second time.
0: Uh, yeah, our last talk was such a delight for me. And what a change, right? Last time we were in your office in Berkeley, you know, together, looking at each other's faces and talking and now, in the time of COVID, even though we're, you know, in the same city, we're in our separate spaces, talking over technology. And I'm just so aware of how different the situation is these days.
1: Well, the world has changed.
0: <laughs> yes, it sure has. Mean, the
1: whole world is not just here. I mean, it's a big change. And we tried, to, we attempting to get face-to-face, but the COVID kept developing.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And how is that going for you? How are you feeling about the whole COVID situation currently? I'm personally
1: okay. I am staying safe. I'm healthy, and all my family are okay.
0: That's very good news. You
1: know, I don't like the fact that we have it. I wish we didn't. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are suffering, and the economy is suffering, and, I mean, it's a big impact on the whole of the human race, you know.
0: Yeah, very big. Are you finding that it's a major topic in your teaching or with your students currently?
1: It's not a major one, but it comes up. Like, all our teachings now is online, for instance,
0: yeah, no in-person retreats. So. Yeah, we used to do it
1: always in person, and now we do everything online. So that's different, and, you know, and I, of course, if people ask questions about it. We discuss it. It's not the main thing that we're teaching, our teaching, our work. But I try to make it sort of relevant to the times.
0: Okay, so the big thing on the agenda here is that you have a new book called Love Unveiled. And this is a very, very fascinating text. I was lucky enough, your helper there sent me an advanced copy, so I got a chance to look through that. And it's just extremely fascinating. And I think a very, very relevant topic. And so how would you feel if we jumped right in and talked about some of the aspects that you're discussing in that book?
1: That sounds good to me. That Hopefully we'll get into some kind of depth and help our audience get some kind of taste.
0: That would be great. And, of course, this is your topic, so as we're moving along, feel free to keep nudging it deeper and deeper into the deep end of this discussion. I would really like that. Sure.
1: I'm glad we can go deep. Yeah.
0: So the initial thing I would say is that when we're talking about spirituality or meditation and we're talking about consciousness or awareness, non-duality, it's very, very common, not always, but very common that either people reduce the entirety of the practice to something about awareness and it's sort of like you know, pure, clear awareness, awareness itself, nothing but awareness. Or that they say that some awareness has like facets, like maybe there's some compassion in there or some warmth together, you know, it has some facets or features. But it seems like you're saying that actually no, that there is love, and that is something that is quite different than simply awareness. And so, am I understanding this correctly, and and what can you say about that?
1: I understand correct, and it is one reason why I wrote the book, to bring in a perspective that is partly a corrective.
0: So please, correct our perspective here.
1: Well, because as you said, most people, they talk about spirituality these days because of the dominance of the non-dual view that comes from the East, the focus is on consciousness and awareness. In the Western world, if we look at the spirituality, the Western world, whether it's uh, Christian mysticism or the Sufis, you know, which is the Islamic mysticism, the focus is more on love in relationship to the divine and love as the main thing. In fact, Rumi says, love is it. Love is reality. Love is God. He doesn't talk about awareness much. Doesn't mean he doesn't know about awareness, doesn't recognize awareness, but love is important. And you know, the way I see the way it's corrective is that people need to know that their spiritual nature, it is true it is pure consciousness and awareness, but it is also pure love, pure compassion pure intelligence, all of these things are inherent in our spiritual nature. Awareness is fundamental, but love is what speaks to human beings, and it's really what transforms human beings and what makes transformation easy for human beings, which is something not addressed by the people who focus on awareness or emptiness for that matter.
0: Yeah, it seems like in our everyday concept of love, like love of our partner or love of our family or even love of God, people seem to be talking about something that is in some way a shadow or a lesser expression of love than what I think you're describing.
1: You got it right here, Michael. And that is another corrective that the book does, or more informative or adding to our understanding of love that what we experience emotionally as love is a reflection a shadow of the real thing which is more in the spirit level which is pure presence pure light and so it is self-existent it is on its own it is not a reaction for our nervous system it comes from the spiritual world from our spiritual ground And fills the heart and fills the consciousness and comes out in our generosity and affection and all that. So what people know as love is really an approximation to that, but more of a reflection, I think. And because it is not the real true love which is more of a spiritual presence, a spiritual kind of element, human love gets into possessiveness and reactivity and jealousy and things like that, and it's self-centered. And I think that is one reason why the Eastern tradition tend to avoid talking about love, because they think love has to do with attachment. It brings an attachment, which it can, but that's more the usual human love uh, that most people feel, which is more emotional. That brings an attachment. When we experience love on the essential level or spiritual level and experience it present, it is like part of what I am. It is my part of my being. One way my being manifests is as the richness and the sweetness and generosity of love, but it is really a fullness, a richness of spirit which appears as the heartfulness of realization, the heartfulness of a spiritual experience.
0: And how is that qualitatively different than, say, just the emotion of love or that emotion of sweetness that anyone would recognize when they see their, let's say, favorite dog or something? You know, they feel that sweetness, they feel love. How is that different?
1: Well, I mean, when people can say, well, you're so sweet, or you feel sweet. But do they really taste the sweetness? Or is it just an expression? A loving expression, we say it's sweet. But when I talk about sweetness, I mean, you really taste sweetness. You taste like sugar. You taste like honey. And the taste is in the heart, not on the tongue. So the whole consciousness becomes taste buds and full of of the sweetness. But the sweetness, as I'm saying, is not metaphorical. It's actually direct. sensation and experience of a, a sweet kind of atmosphere, a sweet presence that makes us feel love is delightful, delectable, and yummy, and pleasurable, and which makes us glow with a kind of a generosity and a selfless appreciativeness, not a possessive one.
0: And what would you say is the relationship between consciousness and love? If they're sort of on the same level, what is the relationship between them?
1: You see, if we go to the non-dual teachings, they will think that love is an expression of consciousness or awareness. And the teaching I myself teach, that I'm an approach, I see both consciousness and awareness as expression of spiritual nature. They are both expressions. Awareness it happens to be there all the time because we are conscious, aware people. But even when we're conscious, we're not really knowing the awareness of the consciousness and its isness and its presence and its facticity. So we're just aware of the function of awareness, we're not aware of awareness itself. For awareness itself, it is a kind of clear, transparent medium. And love is the same way, it's a medium. But it is a sweet and beautiful golden or pink or some kind of medium instead of colorless, the way awareness is. So. And the way I look at it, we could do it both from the non-dual or from a deeper level, what I consider deeper level than non-dual, which is indefinable spiritual nature, which is the source of awareness and love, which can manifest as pure love. Everything is love, or it manifests as awareness. Everything is awareness or consciousness.
0: And we see everything is awareness or consciousness, that's clear. Would you also say that everything is love? Yes, you can say the same thing.
1: In fact, that's what Rumi and the Sufi poet talk about, that everything is love. And one thing I wanted to point to, when you look at spiritual teachers and masters, they are the ones who are illuminated and radiate clarity and selflessness and all of that. But there are also those who are radiating clarity and selflessness but also ra- have richness and juiciness to them it shows that there is heart that love is coming through with awareness i give you examples for instance if you think of like uh, one of the non-dual teachers ramana maharshi ramana maharshi when you look at his picture you see love you see he talks about the self or the ultimate, which is a pure consciousness. But he exemplifies sweetness of love much more than any of the other non-dual teacher at Veda Vedanta. If you go to who also non-dual, there are many Zodgian teachers. But if you remember somebody like Tilku Kensa Pache. When you look at his face and his eyes, he's exuding sweetness and love and liking of others. He's not just aware. So I see love as a maturation of realization. Awareness is realization. To, be, to recognize your awareness, you are awareness. This is realization or liberation. The maturation of that realization will have to include love when love will manifest as one way this awareness expresses itself, especially in human life.
0: And how do we learn to tell the difference between the clinging human level of love with a lot of expectation and personal selfishness and this deeper open hearted spiritual love?
1: A good question, Michael. Two ways. One of the ways is an expression, in the way we live it or you know act it out in life. Emotional human love usually has a love drama around it. You fall in love. There is excitement. There is you know heartache. There is longing. There is rejection. Fear. And if one is fulfilled, then there's possessiveness, and jealousy that can happen, all of that. That shows an expression. And t- if you feel it inside, you might feel love, but you feel more like a, a desire and wanting and with a lot of fantasy around it. When it comes to the spiritual or essential love, the expression of it. There's equanimity in it. There is a givingness and a good-hearted expression that is kind, that is sweet, that is loving, that is more wanting that functions to make the other person happy and feel good and not wanting anything from them. So in the expression and the behavior There is no sign of possessive wanting, it's just simply giving and generosity and happiness in the happiness of others. And if somebody is happy, you're you're just happy for them. If you love them, you're even more happy for them. In terms of the actual inner state, the difference from regular emotional love, and the regular emotional love, as I said, feels inside as a reaction, emotion, or a desire, and one thing, and an intense passion, maybe, or, or some kind of a melting. And in uh, spiritual love I'm talking about, you experience it as an inner medium that has texture. It's a fullness of presence. You feel it as a presence in the sense when you feel it, you feel more here. More now, more present, more fully yourself. I feel more love fills me. I feel I am here because love is here, appearing as presence, as the very beingness of my uh, consciousness, the very beingness of my spirit. And all, but it is a medium. And when I medium, I see is like you feel the consciousness as a field, but the field here has a fullness, has a texture, has a taste has a color. The color could be golden or pink or pomegranate or a glowing uh, color to it and, and the sense of purity, but but the sense of uh, fullness, is the texture, it's like there's as if your heart is full of nectar or dripping with honey. So that is almost a physical experience of love, but it is really the Close to physical because the presence feels like substance, but it is not really material substance. It's more the fullness of being, the fullness of the spiritual nature, but appearing in the quality of love. So that's a very big difference than emotional love. I mean, you don't feel that in emotional love. And also in the sense in it inside is not like a medium, not only necessarily filling the heart, it could expand through the whole room and fill the whole universe. You could feel the whole universe is full of the same medium, glowing and sweet, smooth texture of a delightful kind of pleasurable happiness and appreciativeness and delight And the sight of reality, and the sight of the divine, and the sight of nature, and the sight of other people.
0: As I listen to you talking, I'm reminded of the Bhakta tradition in India and Radha Krishna literature that is so beautifully rich with images of longing and desire and love and It's fascinating because, of course, if we're coming from a non-dual tradition, coming from uh, particularly a Buddhist tradition, there's this sense that we should somehow stamp out desire or remove longing or flatten it or get it cut out surgically or something, like it's bad. In fact, you know, it's the ultimate thing in some traditions that we're trying to remove. And yet, here's this whole other tradition, many traditions actually, as you said, the Sufi tradition and also the Bhakti tradition are actually focusing on desire or yearning as the most important thing. So how do you model the role of this longing, this yearning, this desire in spirituality?
1: Well, as you know, the spiritual... Search begins with a desire, with a yearning, and it becomes a seeking and a search before we get into the awakening and enlightenment. And you wonder where does this yearning and this desire come from? You know, when we inquire into the desire and yearning, which are utilized in a bhakti tradition, they are really the outer expression of love. We yearn for something because we want it. We want it because we love it. We like having it. We like being close to it. So love is at the very heart of desire and yearning, but on the ordinary level, when we experience love only as emotional response or a desire, wanting, we're feeling the outer expression of love. We're not feeling the love itself. Love itself doesn't have yearning. So the bhakti tradition, you see, when they talk about yearning and all of that and love, it's a mixture of the two levels. There is the yearning, the longing, and the desire mixed with the sweetness of love. So that makes the bhakti attitude. But the bhakti, as they become realized, they just experience love, and then there's no desire, there's just celebration, enjoyment. Like when Indian bhakti has a vision of Krishna, for instance. The senses of awe and celebration, yearning got them there. But when they're there, it's the fullness, the effulgence of love.
0: I see what you're saying. So, of course, the desire or the yearning falls by the wayside at the end either way. I think it's so fascinating, though, that rather than kind of denying or suppressing desire, in these traditions we can follow it home, so to speak, or follow the yearning of the heart back to the center of love.
1: Yeah, many traditions do that, both East and West.
0: And really,
1: the way it appears in the non-dual teaching is that the love is between the student and the guru. The student is to revere and love the guru. So, the bhakti attitude is there, but in relationship to the guru instead of relation to the divine. So, it's not like non dual teaching don't have bhakti. They do, but it is not seen as the method. And one thing, you know, I was remembering, like, uh, you hear of Atmananda, one of the main Advaita Vedanta masters? Yes. Atmananda, who teaches. Basically, non-dual witnessing, which is mere recognition of consciousness. His followers in the U.S., now in other places, that's all they teach in their satsang, how to recognize consciousness. But when you read the biography of Atmananda himself, when he met his guru, his guru gave him several things to practice. The first thing he had in practice for a long time was the bhakti. He had to practice bhakti yoga. So he began his training as a bhakti before he became a coach, Jnani, where he knows about consciousness. So in that tradition, really, the bhakti is very important, but the modern (laughs) students don't do the bhakti parts, although Atmananda practiced it himself before he got to the pure awareness. awareness.
0: Yes, and I'm thinking about how even in Tantric tradition, a Vajrayana tradition, one would do the nundro first, which would include quite a bit of devotion and love towards the teacher. And that's the preliminary step, right, before working with anything else.
1: Yeah, and when you look at the truly accomplished masters, like in the Buddhist tradition, if you look at Dzogchen, if you look at the Dalai Lama right now, Dalai Lama, he he's full of love and compassion and heart. Although he talks about you know emptiness and awareness, he also talks about love and compassion, and he is full of love and compassion. He's an embodiment of it. So uh, that tradition is not empty of love and heart. It's just empty awareness is seen as the enlightenment, mm. which it makes sense. I mean, I have that experience, and it's true from it. But you see, the trick is that the empty awareness is the enlightenment, but then the enlightened need to mature, and the maturation of that enlightenment is the arising of the heart, the fullness of the heart, as seen in the case of the Dalai Lama or somebody like Dirk Kukense.
0: Now, how do you approach teaching this opening of the heart to your students?
1: So, the way I do it is direct, meaning, first of all, since love is one way that our spiritual nature, which is our true nature, can express itself, manifest itself. If we're not aware of it, then there must be some barriers, must be some obstacles in the way. Otherwise, how come it is part of being ourselves? So, our first work on obstacles to it, which has to do with one's psychology, one's identity, one's sense of self, one's history. And because many people, you know, they don't experience love directly. Because love is important for a human being. We need it. We're babies. Love is, is what most people talk about. And a person who is not loved doesn't grow well. And the person who is really loved tends to grow better. And it's been actually, in you know, research and uh, all of that to find that that's true. Not just for human beings, for mammals in general. So I work on the fact that if we have love with our nature, and it's something we really need, really want, why don't we feel it directly? So we found uh, what I call obstacles or barriers in the way. And this teaching I have is that depending on the quality of love, the kind of love, there are specific barriers that we can work with, with students by doing practices and exercises and and inquiring with the student into those barriers and then by seeing it, their historical origins, the barriers begin to sort of dissolve and as they dissolve, then the space is open for the heart to reveal its love, it's it's nature, loving nature.
0: What would be an example of one of these
1: barriers? For instance, if you take loving kindness, for instance, right to feel kind and loving towards somebody's pain, one of the barriers is that we don't want to feel our own wounding, our own emotional hurt. So if we allow ourselves to recognize that we don't want to feel our own emotional hurts, so everybody got emotional wounding because all the relationship they had, not just with their parents, but later on with lovers and friends, deal with the wounding and they experience the wounding, the wounding itself will become an opening into that deeper level of heart where the juices of love will begin to arise from within the wound actually. That's an example. Another kind of sort of love is what I call the melting, emerging love. When, when that makes us feel we want to be close to, connected with somebody, we want to be so much unified with them with the situation that has to do with our original relationship with our mother where that kind of very deep connection is what happens between the infant and the mother so difficulties in that first relationship will appear as difficulties in having access to this quality of love so we deal with those all distortions or difficulties or problematic relationships earlier on by first reliving it emotionally, understanding it. And as it dissolves, it makes it possible for us to experience this quality. And then we feel the sweetness of a golden kind of love that melts in the consciousness that makes us feel some kind of nourishing kind of presence and just the way an infant who is with a loving mother would feel. But now we are not an infant, we are the presence itself. Another quality, for instance, is appreciative or love, which way you say you like somebody, you appreciate them, you want know, to know about them as much as possible. That's a different kind of love, and the issue in it is the fact that we feel not loved. If we were not loved, or love was uh, limited or conditional, so just everybody is different. Seeing how we feel rejected, not loved, or not loved enough, and how that makes us feel, it's, all these are emotional things. What we call the knots of the heart, what Rumi will call them the knots of the heart, or the windings of the bosom, he will call them. So working with these, you know, and acquiring into them, and feeling them. And by feeling them, getting insight about them, what they're about, and how they are impression from the past, they don't have to be here anymore. And then if you understand, they tend to dissolve, and they dissolve. the The heart has a spaciousness, an openness, that within which the love, the particular quality of love, would begin to arise.
0: And if you were to point someone towards having an experience, a deeper experience of love, or a more complete opening of love. How would you point that out? What's your way into the heart? Well, I mean,
1: you could do it as a kind of a guided meditation, which I do sometimes, which is taking one from the usual experience of love and letting them feel how it speaks of something deeper, and to feel into their heart, and see where it's coming from. What is it a reflection of? They might begin to experience the real thing that gets reflected in the usual experience of love. And also, frequently, somebody will tell me, I feel grateful. I'll tell them, well, what's that feel like? And I say, oh. I feel like I'm really happy with what I said, yeah, that's what you tell me. But when you feel in your heart, what do you experience? And that's when they begin to say, oh, it feels like there is a nectar. That will be the recognition on their part.
0: And can you describe anything about this nectar?
1: Well, there are many kinds of nectar, as I mentioned. I mentioned different kinds, but remember, the heart, first of all, has many qualities. And it's all sort of the nature of love, but the heart has things like fulfillment, has something like gratitude, you know. So and people don't think of these as love, but they are qualities of the heart. They have similar things to what love has, which is, and they are all negatives. And love is like a passionate love, for instance. Passionate love is zesty, is passionate, is ecstatic. But it feels like a strong feeling and a tart kind of nectar. And if you taste it, it tastes like pomegranate juice, actually. Almost all pomegranate syrup. And you can see it. It it looks like pomegranate, if you see it. But the feeling of it is a love that has power, that has passion, that has intensity, that has an ecstatic kind of pleasure. So... That's a kind of nectar. It looks like pomegranate syrup. The other kind, of like like the mergi, the melting and wanting to be together and wanting to be sort of not separate, all of that. This appears like a golden nectar, like honey with the sun shining through it. The texture and the density is not as dense as honey, not as sticky as honey, but it is beautiful, delicate kind of a... Glowing golden nectar that fills the heart, seeps through the consciousness, melt the tensions, melt the obstacles. Many people talk about love. Like even Romy talks about love all the time. He never, never described what's it feel like. What is the inner experience of it? How do you feel it? They say sweet, but the sweet what? So, even the teachings of love, they don't go into the phenomenology of it. So, in this book, I'm trying to bring out the phenomenology of love. What is physiognomy? What is it? You know, what kind of consciousness, when it is felt, what does it feel like? You know, how does it impact the body and mind? Something like that. So, that's what I'm trying to bring out. It's not just love and good and selfless and giving all that's true but that doesn't say yet the phenomenology that it is like a nectary kind of consciousness
0: conscious of itself as sweet nectar and for you how has this been arising like is it a recent opening in your own experience or is it something that was there from early on
1: depend depends what you mean by recent, in my 70s. <laughs> well, I had some of that in my early childhood, but I wasn't aware of them by the time I started practicing in my late 20s. So as my spiritual openings start happening, it included those qualities of love later. 20s and beginning in 30s, I was experiencing these things and understanding them. That is when the teaching that we call the Diamond Approach was beginning to formulate itself. These are things I've been experiencing for decades. These fill my life, fill my relationships.
0: And currently, what for you is kind of the interaction or the relationship between the awakened consciousness or awakened mind, and the awakened heart, how do they intermingle or interact? Now, one way of
1: saying it is, using a Gurdjieff way of looking at things, the human being is a three-brained being, has three centers, the belly, the heart, and the head. So the head has to do with illumination, with enlightenment, with awareness. The heart has to do with love with goodness, and the belly has to do with the solidity of being, of presence. So there are all different dimensions of the same nature. There's different qualities or facets of the same nature. So in my teaching, love is necessary to approach truth because my approach is all predicated on loving the truth for its own sake. I love to find out what is the truth of my experience, the truth of reality, you truth, truth of anything. So love is already the motive, power for the practice. And then the truth we discover, some of the truth is first presence, and then presence appears as nature of our awareness that make us discover awareness. And as we discover awareness and consciousness, then that consciousness matures, and part of its maturation is the fullness of heart as love.
0: Why is it that so many people seem to have a difficulty feeling loved by the world, by others, or feeling even love for themselves? These would seem to be kind of fundamental important attributes, and yet so many people report having a very difficult time with this.
1: It's the story of the human race. Human beings, just like mammals, but human being more, need lots of love, especially at the beginning. And human life is informed by love. When you talk with your friends, with people, most of the movies and the stories, all about love, love relationship. People don't talk about awareness or emptiness, whatever, in their daily discourse. (laughs) (laughs) Whether somebody loves them, whether they love somebody, whether they love or not, fallen out of love or love, they're hurt because of love. It's all about love. Mostly the human story is about love. And so the result is that love is important, but our environment, our society has not developed to the point of view where love is that easily accessible, easily present, so most people their parents are not that loving, or they didn't love them enough, or they love them then they love somebody else, they felt abandoned, and so abandonment, limitation of early love, rejection, it creates wounds in the heart, and we get wounded, people get wounded, and the wounding Become then suppressed because it's painful to feel. And then from the wounding, there arises anger for being hurt and rejected or not wanted and all that. Anger and hatred. All those emotions result mostly around love, really. Love is the original feeling. Let's put it this way the original, primordial effect of the heart is love. Everything else bifurcate from there is either expression of it or a distortion of it or a reaction to it. And that is mostly the human suffering. What we call human suffering is mostly is of the heart more than anything else. Buddhism talks about the mind. But what do they mean by the mind? They don't really mean just thinking. They mean the totality of consciousness, which includes the heart. Most of human suffering is really emotional suffering, as you know. true people worry and think and all of that and especially if you meditate you recognize how your thoughts are a problem but the actual suffering that human beings experience every day is of an emotional nature like fear and anger or hatred or frustration and stuff like that but all of those has to do with love and love is not that available because humanity is not developed to have love be dominant emotion for most human beings. Most human beings don't have it as accessible because of their own wounds, because of their own hurts and suppression of their hurts and repressions of their hurt and anger and all. They suppress their heart. Most human beings, their heart is not that open. It is closed, it is partially open or it is suppressed because of the suffering involved and that happened around the issues of love whether we were loved enough or not, or we loved or rejected, loved or abandoned, all of this creates a history that impresses the consciousness, that creates a kind of karma, present life karma, which becomes an impediment to the openness of heart. So love as a result is not available. And because of it, everybody is looking for it.
0: And when you describe being able to approach these wounds and eventually use them as doorways or access love through them. How does that work?
1: Well, it is a delicate operation because it's difficult to feel one wound and not try to do something about it. We either react with anger or frustration or we close it down, withdraw. But to feel the hurt... To feel the wound, most people think they shouldn't feel hurt. They should just, you know, turn it off or forget about it. But the approach of this teaching is that, no, the wound is the beginning. So it's a whole teaching. It's an education in the path of how to stay with one's experience without rejecting it, without trying to change it. So if a hurt or a wound arises, you don't reject it. Don't try to fill it with something else. Don't distract yourself from it. Feel it as fully as possible. Embrace it. And by embracing it, you are also curious about it. What is it? What's it about? What's it feel like? And how come I feel that way? Where does that come from? So there is an inquiry that goes around the wounds and the hurt. And at the same time, there is an embracing and kind of an acceptance and allowing of the hurt to happen without judgment and without reaction. It takes time, just like any spiritual practice, to learn how to be that way with one's experience, because for most people, this is a difficult kind of experience to feel. And I'm sure if you meditated and sometime in meditation, you have emotional pain, emotional things that happen that arise, and in meditation, you're supposed just to feel them and not do anything about them. And similarly, in this practice, you feel them, not do anything about, however, the difference, and there's a curiosity about what is it? does it feel like? Where does it come from? How come I feel that way? And that will allow the wound to reveal its story, to unwind. As it unwinds, it shows its origin, where it came from. And the origin of that wound is the disconnection from that quality of love, quality of heart.
0: Mm. Now, you've described many different flavors of the nectar of love. And I'm just curious, what is your favorite flavor? <laughs>
1: I like the pomegranate for some reason, because its ecstasy makes the mind disappear. Hmm. The love that dissolves the mind. The mind doesn't disappear because of meditation. It dissolves because of the passionate, ecstatic love. So I like that. I like the other one too. I mean, it's not like really to say a preference is not really accurate. I don't really have a preference. They are all me. They are all expression of my heart. And each one has its own function. And let's say people are oriented toward one kind or another more than others, naturally. And that is beyond preferences, more the way one's consciousness functions. So one important thing to also to say is that the book you mentioned, The Love Unveiled, I talk about three qualities of love, right? Only three. I don't talk about more than three. But this is a book that I wrote because I have something in mind. Besides bringing the phenomenology of love into the field of spirituality, I'm also bringing out aspects of this teaching that has to do with love, and this is the first of a series. next book is gonna be about universal love or cosmic love or what I call divine love, which is where love When it arises, you love everything and everybody, and everything becomes a manifestation of love. I call that divine love. The third book is about what I call the beloved, the inner beloved. How true nature, how Buddha nature, or how the divine, we experience it not as what will illuminate us, but as the ultimate beloved that the heart wants. That makes it similar to some of the Christian kind of
0: mystical teachings. So, Love Unveiled is already available, correct? Yes. And when is the next book coming out? Yeah, hopefully
1: next year. We are in the process of editing it, and probably you know, hopefully we'll give it to Shambhala sometime this year. The Divine Love is what most teaching, to, when they talk about love, they talk about cosmic love, but they don't talk about the quality of love like in this present book. So the second book will bring in love, which will show it as an undual kind of way of experiencing things. Third book, as I said, about the inner beloved, mm. which is the ultimate nature, which the Hindu will call the Brahman or Shiva, and uh, Buddhism will be called the uh, Dharmakaya, is experienced as the inner dweller of the heart, as what the heart truly wants. When the heart is unified and knows what it wants, it wants that. Good, Michael. So, nice conversation. I'm glad we got to talk about the different things and some depth. And of course, the audience can read the book to find more of the details. Because the, the book details, not only the three codes of love, but also how to work with them, how to work the obstacles, how to access them and stuff like that.
0: All right, thank you so much, mean, Have a wonderful rest of your day. I'm
1: hoping it will be useful for people, especially these days, we need love. If people can feel their heart, I think we'll be in much better shape. <laughs>
0: that's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica from August 3rd to the 10th We will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice, with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific coast retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat. If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash michaeltaft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, So if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session.